Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. There is a subtle but dangerous belief that the pressures and challenges of events in the workplace cause stress. This form of thinking could be seen as an outside-in view, where an external event is the cause of an internal response. In many cases, there is a strong correlation between workplace risk factors and reported states of stress. However, this relationship is not causative. In other words, if there is a relationship between workplace and stress, it's more likely an upside-down one, where resilient people make productive workplaces. This week's guest, Dr. Ian Snape, CEO of Frontline Mind, presents a different way of thinking about stress in the workplace and the value of building a resilient workforce. Ian has over 30 years of experience leading and managing teams in strategy, innovation, and adventure. He is the co-founder of two related companies, the coaching space Proprietary Limited, a niche coaching company, and Frontline Mind, a global training company. Discover Ian's approach to workplace stress and what he believes is the key to a happy and productive workplace. Dr. Ian Snape, thanks very much for sharing your time with me and being a show on our podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, so I'm really interested uh, and intrigued uh, about your background. Tell us, tell us where it all started for you because I just reading some of the stuff in your bio, I was like, hey, he's a research guy. And then all of a sudden, the stuff that you're doing lately is amazing and almost completely different, but I'm sure there's a link. So I'm keen to hear about the background of you. Yeah, I've, I've had a fairly eclectic history. I almost think of it as two parallel streams that came together. One of them was as a research scientist working in working in federal government as a, an executive. So I was leading research teams in polar research working at the interface between science and policy and uh, practical application. Uh, through there, I, I, I went on a leadership journey. I got myself an executive coach in the early days, uh, did lots of leadership courses, and, and because I was leading small remote teams in high-pressure environments, uh, I learned a lot, and, I, and I, had to, I had to learn how to help people in those sorts of uh, remote, isolated environments. So where were you based when you were doing those research roles? Uh, primarily in Hobart, so okay. with the Antarctic program. Yes. And uh, the environment you were faced with, obviously you were saying high pressure situations, making decisions quickly. What, what, what prompted you to want to get some training around being a leader and, and at what point did you recognise it was really a leadership role? I think I re- it really came home to roost when I went on holiday. I, I'm really passionate about skiing. I'd have really long ski trips and, and I'd go away and the wheels would fall off. 
my teams wouldn't work, uh, people would be arguing, there'd be conflict. Uh, and then I come back and it didn't seem that hard to me. I, I couldn't work out how come people were not getting along. Uh, but I had no way of passing on what I was doing. I didn't know what I did. I had no idea. Uh, but something was obviously working. So that's when I got myself a, an exec coach and said, how do I bring my executive team along? How do I bring people on the journey so that they, I can go, on, go skiing and I don't have to worry about what's going on? Uh, and that was a catalyst. Uh, she helped me uncover some of the things that I was doing. Uh, I got training uh, and I realised that I could uh, train other people to, to do what I was doing. And in fact, I, I greatly improved my own performance by that process. So that's where that's where that part of it all began. Was it, was a key part of that communication? Uh, absolutely communication. There were other things as well. Uh, noticing, just okay. noticing patterns, noticing what was going on. Being aware, uh, being able to, uh, I'm quite fortunate, I'm, I'm, I'm one of these people that very easily can switch off my own internal self-talk. Uh, I can just switch it off and I, I enjoy silence, uh, which means I can listen. So uh, that's, a, that's a skill I, yeah. uh, I natively had, but now I know how to pass that along. I can teach people how to quiet in that internal chatter. So that's, that's great for their well-being, but it also means that they can, they can also learn to listen and coach and, and do those sorts of things. So uh, getting equipped in the leadership side of things, that obviously helped you from then make a, a, a bit of a difference with what you were doing in the work front? Oh, very much, yeah. yeah I, I learned a lot about uh, the theory of teaming, how to get teams to work well together, uh, communications, differences. Uh, we tried all sorts of different things. So I had, I had the privilege of uh, test driving a lot of these things with uh, quite rapid uh, forming of teams, deploying them, uh, debriefing them, uh, getting them to perform and dealing with, and dealing with conflict in, in remote environments where people are living uh, and working with each other 24-7 for months at a time. Uh, so, you know, I got, I got to test drive stuff and I'd throw out everything that didn't work and I kept everything that did uh, and, uh, yeah, took it from there. It's incredible. Was that, was that what's prompted you to want to get into the coaching space? Oh, very much. Yeah. Uh, I was I was already coaching as well in a in a parallel life, so uh, I've been really into um, outdoor sports with skiing and climbing, and, and and I've got a long history in martial arts. So I was coaching in martial arts, coaching kids, coaching adults, uh, and and taking some of those that, that passion for for helping other people uh, develop, and uh, and then the, the the two parallels came together from coaching elite athletes and uh, in how to. Uh, get it together under pressure. Coaching teams, how to get it together under pressure, and then sort of bringing to, bringing that together into a into a new career, a new uh, a new venture. So, at what point did you transition from the research side of things into coaching? Well, it's a good question. In that, I, I don't think I've ever transitioned. Okay. Um, I think once you once you're really curious about stuff and you 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 have that kind of researcher. Uh, bent there's a little bit of nerdiness in me that I, I just really like to see the evidence I like to understand it I like to know how things work and what puts things together so I, I, I'm still passionate about researching and I'm looking to do more of that in, in to sort of uh, refine what I'm doing in the coaching and the and the training space so yeah. I don't think I've ever left it yeah are you very analytical would you say I, I am I'm quite fast with analytics I don't okay. like I don't like sitting there with a spreadsheet for 10 hours I find it incredibly <laughs> boring uh, but I don't. I like to dip in and have a quick look at stuff. And I might do an hour or, or something in, in the analysis space. Then I like to go out and 
you know, talk to people and then I like to do practical things in the real world and then sort of back again. So uh, I'm, I'm a classic ADHD. Uh, I can't sit still, like to do lots of things, like to have lots of projects on the go. Yeah, like to be kept busy. Oh, yeah, yeah. So tell us, how did Frontline Mind start? Uh, curious, a curious journey. Uh, around about 11 years ago, uh, I, I went to a conference uh, this is after the Green Loans and Pink Bats conference, uh, or a, a debacle in, in government, yeah. I guess is the, is, the, is the right way of describing it. And the, the, the federal government, the department, ran this conference called the Risky Business Conference. And there's an opportunity for all the execs, there's like 150 execs went along, to, to, to not stuff up again. You know, it, was, it was one of those navel-gazing, let's have a look at what, you know, what went wrong, how do we improve governance? And there were, there were lots of reports came out at the time that analysed the, the, the problems uh, and the, they, they came down to two things. They came down to leadership and governance. And I was in the conference and I, I was just fascinated that the whole conference focused on governance and there was nothing specific about the leadership. And, and when I started talking to people, they'd talk about it but they didn't actually know what it was they were doing. And, and this was about risk. And because I'm, I was interested in extreme skiing and climbing and all these other high-risk sports that I was into, I thought, you know, it'd be really fun to go out and model the best risk-takers in the world. So I, I started following around uh, mountain guides who made decisions in avalanche terrain, and I was starting to coach them with some uh, frontline people, so correctional officers, police, and I started interviewing and working out what do they do to survive and thrive in complex high-risk environments. And one of my uh, criteria was that they had to be reasonably old. They had to be over 40. There's no point modelling a 20-year-old male because they haven't had a chance to die yet. I wanted to know who's, who lives, uh, who's out there doing some really good stuff. So I went out to these, to these people and I just modelled the, the patterns of behaviour, the thinking, the communication, how they put decisions together, uh, what is it they did. Uh, and I did that for years, years and years of just building up an, a, a base and just, just really thinking about my coaching practice and my leadership and what are these people doing that's different from those people. And, I, and the idea was I'd bring that, that experience from the front line, from extreme into business. Uh, so that was, the, that was the passion, that was the project. Uh, and along on the journey, the guy, one of the guys that was training and mentoring me said, hey, you should talk to this guy, Mike Weeks. Uh, he's just as crazy as you and you guys will get on like a house on fire. And we, we had a few conversations and he was writing a book at the time and I, I said, I'm too busy to write a book, I've got other stuff on. And, you know, another year went by and then eventually he said, oh, I'm doing this stuff with some frontline people in America. Uh, you got any ideas? And we, we started batting around and before we knew it, we'd formed a company called Frontline Mind. Uh, he was doing a similar thing with special forces in Britain and in, in America. Um, he'd be modelling out patterns, uh, bringing in training programs, looking at resilience, looking at recovery. Uh, he's done a lot of stuff on, on trauma, going into disaster zones, uh, doing fast trauma r recovery in a coaching framework. So it's a, it's a beautiful uh, coming together of different, uh, different experiences. And uh, yeah, that's where we are. That's, that's really interesting. So you actually went and sought risk takers and you brought them into the room with um, leaders within ambulance, police, that sort of thing. Or, or did you go learn and then and then you transition transferred that knowledge yourself? Yeah, we're in that. That's that's the process. We're okay. modelling out, interviewing, uh, and, and we recognise the patterns now. There are lots of lots of common patterns. There's a few unusual ones still pop out every now and again. Um, we've we've just finished. I mean, literally just last week, finished writing a book. 
called Resilience by Design. And in here, we've got 12 chapters, and this showcases a lot of the patterns that we detected from these from these exemplars, these people who wow. uh, go into extremes. And a lot of the stuff you know, comes through in metaphor or it comes through in their descriptions or you can see it in their body as they're describing to you. Really simple stuff. Like yeah. I took a step back or I, I took a breath and then I dot, dot, dot. And then there's, you, know, you, can, you can pull that apart and you can start to look at the neuroscience behind what is it that they're doing. And that's what we cover in the book. Uh, it's very exciting because it, we call it practitioner-led. We haven't gone to the theory. We've ignored all that. And then we've gone, what do people actually do? And then how can we code that? What is it? How can we pass it along? How can we train it? Uh, and then what does the science say? What does the science say about those things that work? We've kind of ignored the, the, the body of knowledge and the, hey, here's the evidence base. Evidence, yeah. We've gone to the practitioners. Yeah. And it's, it's somewhat unique, but you find that in that instance, you're modeling behavior, you're observing and then modeling and then taking the key lessons and breaking that down into a process which other people can benefit from. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Yeah. Some of the modeling was was really interesting. Uh, one of the guys I, I modeled was a uh, an Alpine guide called Gary Keane. Uh, brilliant, brilliant thinker. Uh, and what we did was uh, I followed him around in avalanche terrain, uh, assessing uh, stability, assessing route, uh, people, risk, a whole range of things. And I'd just follow, copy, follow, copy, follow. Imagine what I, that I'm 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 him. Uh, and then we'd reverse, and he'd follow me. Uh, and the evidence for, for whether I had the model or not was if I did anything that jarred for him, I knew I didn't have it. But if I did something and he went, that's just the way I would have assessed that slope and that's just the way I would have skied it, uh, I knew I had the model. Mm. So a lot of it's unconscious. A lot of it's just patterns of behavior. Sometimes they don't have words. Sometimes you can't put them into words. But uh, eventually I was able to unpack and, and fit what he did into, into some conceptual theories, particularly around complexity and managing risk in complex, volatile, high-risk environments. Uh, and everything he did absolutely fitted into the theory. It was fantastic. Wow. So, mate, you talk about getting in the thick of it and learning on the job. I mean, that's... That's the process you want to talk, but I guess it was uh, the fastest way to get the result. It was, it was probably two years of modelling, wow. two years of skiing with a really, really good skier, uh, which is pretty hairy at, the, at quite a few times because I'm not as good a skier as him. So I had yeah. to do a few adaptations to survive and <laughs> not go over the cliffs. But, uh, but he looked after me as well. He's just, a, he's just a terrific guy. So you took those lessons of uh, assessing risks, um, the process involved leadership and you use that with your coaching business but then second to that you also joined up and uh, and began the frontline mind or was it is that correct yeah yeah with the coaching I was able to to work with individuals and small teams but we were very limited in in the number of people uh, that we could access and, and could could influence and um, one of the things that Mike uh, is really good at is the creative side and multimedia and, you know, he's, a, he's one of those sort of famous coaches who's coached the stars and he's been on TV and he's, you know, made TV documentaries. So he's got a whole different, I've got the, the science and the nerdy bit and he's got the creative and the, the TV side. And he said, hey, we need to make this into a product that can scale. We need to get this online. We need to make this so engaging. It's the most engaging online program anywhere. Uh, and he said, no, you know, there's no compromise in, in this. this. This has to be 
really special. So we spent two years building an online program before before COVID hit, actually. So we were quite ahead of the game there. And, uh, and that's where we sort of went from sort of coaching small teams and individuals, you know, getting great results there to scaling uh, and having a product that we can... Uh, that we can put out the push of a button. Yeah, so so tell us about that. So tell us about Frontline Minds, what, what the vision, the outcome is for that company. What's the aim? Oh, I guess if, the, if I'm going to go to the mission, it's to, it's to enable people to, to discover their innate resilience. They've got it in there. It's a question of how do you activate that? How do you bring it to the fore? And, and, and that... That framing on enabling them to discover what they've already got is really important. This is not a top-down, we're going to tell you what you should do. This is a, hey, here's, here's some things to consider. Here's some choices. Now let's activate some of those for you. And you choose which ones, which, which ones in here are going to work well for you. Uh, and it is incredibly effective. When you ask the right questions, people discover, oh, when I do this, that happens. Uh, so that's kind of our approach. Yeah. Uh, and then the question was, how can we get that so engaging that even people are a bit sceptical or a bit, you know, this is not really my thing. They go, wow, this is actually really engaging. It's really good fun and, you know, it's quite quick to learn. So. Yeah, so obviously the belief then is that it's all within us. We just need to tap into that part and be shown how to use that tool that's within us already rather than trying to be taught it externally. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 I mean, some, some patterns or some processes uh, are a little bit alien to people. They've not done it before. Uh, and we'll, we'll show them something. Uh, it can be something a bit off topic. And quite often we'll go off topic deliberately to teach a skill. It could be a, a distancing skill. How do you switch on and switch off? Uh, it could be how to shut down internal dialogue. They, some people have never had silence their whole lives. They've never had it. And we show them how to shut it off and they go, oh, my God, how do I not know this? And it's a simple, you know, simple techniques like that. And then they can apply that and then it just it tra transforms their lives once they, you know, little, little, little changes can, can really snowball. And you're obviously, are you just targeting the frontline workers with that program? Uh, we work with anybody. You know, if somebody comes from business, okay. you know, the original project was to, was to take from the frontline and, and bring into business. Uh, having said that, our, our real passion is frontline uh frontline professionals uh, and the, the reason for that passion is you know they do great work uh, it's it's often unrewarding in the sense that I, I think a lot of the public don't appreciate really what goes on mm. they, they're taken they're taken for granted until they don't until they're not there uh, it's incredibly tough uh, and, and I don't mean that the actual job is tough you know going to a fire or dealing with a, a criminal or um, you know dealing with a, a medical emergency that's actually generally not the tough part of the job the tough part of the job is working within the whole ecosystem of a, of a government bureaucracy. Uh, you know, leadership issues, overwhelm, too much work, not enough money, that da, 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 keeps all going, takes, shift work, yeah. all of that stuff, all that. That's the thing that's, that's the real challenge. So we're, we're really just very passionate to help these people. Uh, I mean, we're a little bit selfish there as well because, you know, we want these, want these folks to be available for, to support us and our families. So Yeah, no, that's fair enough. You, you come at this differently though, with um, almost like you were saying that people need to tap into the resilience that's already within them. But evidently, I think what you're saying as well when I read about stuff that you're up to is that there's already a portion of people that are coping and having that resilient nature within them that are doing the job. And what you're saying is that it, instead of 
work creating the pressure and the stress within people, maybe it's flipped on its head. Yeah, I, I think... How do you say that better? <laughs> you, I mean, there's a lot of talks here at this conference that talk about causation. They say that this is a stressful workplace uh, and this, you know, this thing here caused that stress over there. But I think this is really deadly for for a couple of reasons. The, f- the first uh, the first reason that is that you know this is a complex system. It's not usually one thing that happens. There's lots of factors that all uh, interact. So it's very difficult to go, you know, this happened there and then therefore I'm stressed. That's the first first problem. The other problem is it creates victims. If if you make me stressed, the only way I can fix this is to sort you out. Whereas if I recognise that hey I'm having a stress stress response because you're behaving in a particular way. And I've got all the freedom in the world to choose what, how I'm going to respond. I can get stressed. I could step away. I could take a deep breath. I could leave the room. There's all sorts of choices that I've got when I go, actually, this is my response. I'm going to choose how I respond to this. I'm going to choose how I, I respond to the pressures and challenges in these workplaces. So I much prefer to talk about risk factors, protective factors, and, and the sorts of skills that you can do to have your own resilience. And I, and I, I absolutely want every individual in every frontline agency to take personal responsibility and particularly for leaders and managers, they have another responsibility as well and that is to create a, a safe workplace where these people are not under unrealistic expectations and where the quality of their leadership and their management supports people to be resilient. So it's not an either or, it's an, it's an and. And I'm going to extend that and. And if you're a, a, a frontline worker and this workplace uh, you know, is not looking after you and you've tried a whole range of skills and you've still got this signal in your body that's saying, hey, this is, this is killing me, you've got to take personal responsibility. You've got to get out. You've got to go and do something different. Uh, but it's absolutely not okay to just go, I'm just going to stay here and keep getting smashed forever. You know, that's not, yeah. that's not a great outcome. So it, it, in some respects then it's about having that awareness that the reaction that you and the interpretation to something that's happened to you is in your control, the meaning you attach to it. Absolutely. That gap between something you've seen or something you've heard and then suddenly the response that you have, if you've got a response that's... Triggering or... Yeah, you might have a felt sensation. Maybe you get angry, maybe you're frustrated, maybe you're stressed. That's okay, that's a signal. Take a moment and go, hey, look at this. I've got this feeling in my body. This is a da-da-da. What am I going to do about that? Is it working for me? It might be that you're angry or frustrated. It's a great signal. It's probably looking to have something happen. Maybe it's to, to effect change. Maybe it's to do something. But take action on it and recognize what it is and then let it go. Because if you hold on to those extreme states, they can make extremely unwell. Yeah. You know, these are not things that you want to be basking in for, for hours or days. If you've got a stress response for an hour or two on, under pressure, maybe that's okay. You know, there might be better states when you learn them, like flow state uh, is, a, is a great way of dealing with really high-pressure, high-risk environments. Uh, and there, there are other ways, as, uh, other states as well. So it's almost like that awareness. So having that awareness to be able to almost elevate yourself from the challenge at hand and saying, well, hang on, awareness of your own emotions and your reaction to it, but then questioning, well, hang on, why? Analyzing it, why is that happening? And then you can almost then intentionally attach a different meaning to it if you choose. Yeah, close. I'm going to challenge one word. I I don't ask the question, why is it happening? You'll often get a because, da-da-da answer. 
a better thing to, to say is, oh, that's interesting. So you got the ob observation, uh, that stepping back, that observation of what's going on, and then ask the question, what's this for? What's it looking to do for me? What's the intention for it? You know, however you want to frame that. From there, you get great insight. Oh, it's looking to protect me. Oh, it's looking to make sure I get this job done. Oh, it's looking to stop this person doing such and such. Well, great. Once you know the intention, you can come up with an action plan and you can, you can make something happen. Uh, the danger is that you just go, oh, it's because that person over there is making me. And then, you, then, you, then you're stuffed because you're the victim. You're nothing you can do. It's about the other person. Yeah. So tell us about the program then and, and how, is it, how are you implementing it and who are you implementing this with at the moment as far as who's on board? So we've got three broad programs and we cover the whole, uh, I guess, the ecosystem within a frontline agency primarily or, or business more generally. Uh, we develop personal resilience, so we've got resilience program. Uh, we do a, a more bespoke recovery style of, uh, of work. Uh, so that's more with people that have uh, had a challenge and it's not gone well. So that could be an individual with trauma or stress or anxiety or something and, and they're, not, they're not in that you know, well-functioning space. Or it can be teams that need help with recovery, teams in conflict or something's fallen apart or whatever it is. And then we've got the, the, the leadership suite. So looking at leadership and complexity in particular. Uh, so this is how do you how do you lead? How do you communicate with high ambiguity? You don't know what the future holds. So it's situational awareness. Uh, there's a lot on that. It's a lot on pattern detection, working out, well, if it's this, then I should respond that way. If it's like this, maybe I respond differently. So it's situationally dependent leadership, uh, very uh, flexible. Uh, so we look at the situations, for example, where command and control work really, really well. And then we go to situations where, hey, you're better now to facilitate and collaborate. Uh, other times you might need to delegate. So there's different ways of responding depending upon what's going on. So we've got a full sort of suite of, uh, of offerings, if you like. Uh, and what we're doing is uh, working now with all sorts of, uh, of clients uh, delivering those programs. So, for example, we've got uh, leadership programs going out with uh, Applied Health at the University of Tasmania and mm -hmm. University College. Uh, and we've got hundreds of students coming through that course uh, and learning about leadership and resilience uh, in applied health. Uh, we work with prisons and police, uh, ambulance. Uh, we work with some military. We, we work with a whole range of different agencies. Yeah. It's, it's really, I mean, it's really interesting, the stuff that you're doing. I mean, what's the best part that you find by being able to deliver the, the program? Oh, there's lots of there's lots of rewarding things. I, I I'll be honest. I think probably hearing the narrative of an individual who's been really unwell, not at all functioning, not enjoying, uh, go through a, a journey of or transformation where they've discovered that some of the things that they kind of had and maybe forgotten to use and are suddenly starting to work, and they come through and they start to thrive again, uh, and then. Many of them become very, very strong advocates for, for mental well-being uh, and they take on jobs like you know, well-being officers or they set up peer support networks and then they do other, other things and they get promoted and they become senior managers. And you've seen that journey over a few years and they keep in touch and it's, you've gone from off work, ill, traumatized for 12 months to turn, turning, turning their lives around. You can see this story, uh, extremely rewarding. Yeah. So the program is really designed uh, for people that are in the, in the front line. I know it can be transferred to organisations as well, but if we focus on frontline workers at the moment, 
anyone in the frontline working uh, profession can engage in the program, um, undertake it, and then at the end they have a much better awareness. If they are going through some sort of mental ill health challenge, there's automatically uh, a sense that um, they can get through it, that things are turning around. Is it is that what it's about? Is it is it is it is there psychological impacts as well, like that's helping them with depression and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one, there are a couple of distinctions. We're not a diagnostic agency. We're not deliberately. We are deliberately not doing psychology, in the sense of uh, analysing people, uh, giving a diagnosis, and giving a treatment yeah. plan. We operate with a coaching frame. Okay. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is a lot of, particularly frontline, particularly medical professionals, very reluctant to engage with uh, something that might give them a diagnosis. So we, with a coaching frame, you can avoid that. We can talk about high-performance coaching. Okay. We can almost go straight to the outcome without having to tackle the problem. Yeah. Because once they have the outcome, they don't have the problem anyway. And a high-performance program mate, would be something that most people would love to sign up to because they want to perform better in what they're doing. Absolutely. And people are attracted to frontline jobs because they're challenging. Yeah. If, if they didn't want that challenge, they'd go and do something that was, that was much, much easier. They, they sign up because they want that pressure. They want the challenge and they get that high performance. They get that, you know, we're not talking about, you know, you need to be an Olympian here. We talk about high performance sleep. How do you do high performance sleep? It's essential for resilience. Mm. So we teach people high performance sleeping techniques, high performance rest. How do you do micro napping? How do you do, you know, hydration? How do you get to sleep at night? How do you switch from being on in a really high pressure environment to being able to switch off, go home and leave work at work? I mean, that is probably the number one skill we teach. You know, we have, we have posters up in, in the lifts of public health departments and, uh, and people responding to COVID where they get, they get a, a technique that they've been taught that they get reminded of every single day that they go home. Hey, remember, this is your, this is your cool down process. This is, this, is, this is your doorstep. You know, this is how you're going to go home safely uh, and operate sustainably. And, and is the program something that individuals need to undertake in their own capacity or is it something that... The organisations, the institutions are saying we want to put this on and make it available to our people if they choose to do it. It it can be either. Mostly the organisations will will work with us and we'll get a program and we'll work with the managers and the wellbeing officers and those sorts of people to to get the program out right across the whole agency ideally. we can one of the ways that we're we're getting good traction. You know, if you put an online program out, you know, thousand people, you might get a hundred people that go, oh, yeah, something else has just come through. You know, there's that many things coming into their inbox. But but what we're doing is we're we're training up peer support network networkers. I mean, these are people within the business, uh, within the agency who who get some really quite intense training. We give them everything that we've got so that they can operate as a professional coach within the business, they've got all of the online resources to back up what they what we teach uh, and they can have conversations within their teams, within the, the people that they, they come across and they can detect when somebody's not going so well. You know, I've seen this or I've heard that. Do you want to come and have a conversation? Do you want to come and have a cup of coffee? Do you want to, let's talk about this. And oh, and by the way, here's some resources. Here's something I found really useful. Here's something I, I da, da, da. And they, they, get to, they get to log in then and that, that starts to keep it, keep it rolling. And sometimes we've had, we've had people that have logged on six, seven months after it's launched in a, in a business and suddenly you get a, a little rash of people coming back on. And once they've got it, they can have it forever. You know, this is not a timed out, you've got a month to do it. Once, mm. you're, once you're in the system, it's yours for as long as you ever want it. 
So do you then train the peer support workers in the organization? So is that how it works? So there's – Yeah. Okay, so they don't identify a team of people that are willing to put their hand up and be, I guess, own it uh, and help be there to support people throughout the – throughout the journey is that correct throughout the program that's absolutely correct yeah the the other thing we're, that we're, we're doing is amongst those peer support network people there's usually a few just a few stars like really top performers you know these people that they, they're, they're really comfortable with the material or they get it really quickly and they're also good trainers a lot of these people are quite good naturally uh, at coaching or training and and then we'll say hey do you want to do you want to come and do a bit more work with us uh, so that they can be almost our, an extension of our business within the business. We, we'll train them to be trainers, and our, our business model is to to get out of there. Yeah. Our measure of success is that we don't have to go into that, that business anymore, and they've got trainers in there delivering our programs to new recruits. Mm-hmm. This becomes part of the onboarding program where they get to do resilience training, and it's delivered in-house. Uh, if we have to keep going back in, again, it's a dependency model, but it traps yeah. us having to keep going back into these organisations when we'd rather go to new places and you, you know, spread, this, spread the word around. Mate, it's a great way to leverage it and scale up as well because um, you get people that are, like you said, ingrained in the organisation that can take it, own it, lead it uh, and support people through it whilst you continue to develop or be able to reach more people through other avenues. Yeah, there's something else very exciting. It's just we're just getting there now with a number of our, uh, I guess, the in-house trainers. Uh, we've now got in-house trainers in different agencies. So it might be correctional, or it might be medical, or it might be public health, or well, or it might be mental health services. Who are now trained to the point where they can go to different agencies with us. So we get cross-agency. Uh-huh. linkages which brings trust it brings connections it means that in a crisis you know where you've got multiple agencies having to respond to something there are all these all these soft channels mm. where people can communicate where they've, they've got trust and it's like oh look i know somebody in fire i know an ambo over here and you can uh you know sharing cultural experiences sharing networks sharing the ability to get stuff done and what's the delivery of the program is it is it just teacher-led, you know, it's you're sitting down and you're listening or is there simulations, is there examples, is it interactive? It's uh, experiential. Okay. I remember seeing uh, an advertisement a few years ago, some, some corporate training in Canberra about difficult conversations and it said, don't worry, you don't have any scenarios, this is just, you know, we're going to broadcast it at you, essentially what they said and we're the exact opposite. If you want to be, if you want to sit there passively and sort of, you know, hope to absorb some stuff, this is not the training for you. Uh, if you want to come in and really have a go, uh, you get to experience every single resilience strategy that we teach, and that's the way that we teach it. You get to experience it, you get to coach it, and then you can go and deploy it. Uh, but it's not a theory; it's it's experiential and it's experiential design. Uh, we work in small teams. We don't, you know, we're not training 100 people at a time. We do small cohorts. It's quite intensive. Uh, people do say, wow, I did not expect something quite so intensive, uh, but that's just transformed my life. You know, we get fantastic feedback from this, from this training. Uh, and, yeah, like I said, it's very exper- experiential. They can deploy it in their homes. They work with their families. They work with themselves first, uh, and then they can take it out. Having the program online is a real advantage, obviously. Um, you can scale. You can get access to people are anywhere within Australia but I also noticed that you are uh, you have a footprint in the US and the UK is uh, 
is that the extent of where you, is that where you're you're going to right now, or is there future plans to keep rolling this out? I mean, how how big do you want to get? Uh, big's an interesting one. We've we've had a lot of conversations. We're we're really interested in being a uh, a right size, right shape, reasonably small company. We we don't want to be a big company, which is why we're giving away our IP. We're training people in house. We you know we've got that business model because we don't want to be massive. It's not not what we do. We want to keep on to quality and innovation. Uh, the online has given us incredible capability. When when COVID hit in in 2020, you know we were contacted by public health services, and there were lots of people in lockdown, and there were nurses that were infected, and there were doctors you know stressed out. Uh, and within a space of a week, we could reach out to 3,000 people. It was like, okay, here we go, let's go. Uh, and it was very fast, and then we could start to bring in the peer support networks behind uh, and, and do that sort of training and that that, that broader support. So. Uh, so that's been fantastic. My 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 co-founder Mike Weeks is currently in Indonesia uh, and doing some really interesting projects there. Uh, and the Indonesians are, are very welcoming, and there's, there's a number of uh, fascinating projects just starting to begin there. Wow. So uh, so yeah, he's uh, yeah, that's where he is at the moment. With regards to PTSD, stress, anxiety, depression, with this with this program. What is what's where's the opportunity? So so where is the gap that we're now filling within frontline? So is it more prevention? Are you more looking at this as a tool that people can do before they have a traumatic event to equip themselves with some tools to use, uh, or is it more of a, a treatment and after uh, you know after they've been through an event to help uh, get them through it? Where, where do you see this playing a role within the frontline workers with the mental health? The main benefit is upfront. It's designed as a preventative program more than a a recovery program. We have a recovery package, a recovery program that we do teach the uh, peer support networkers. Uh, We don't have most of that online yet. Uh, That's where we're building at the moment. Uh, So of the three programs, we've gone for the resilience and the leadership first and the recovery program uh, is a little bit further down the train for for online. Uh, We we teach this, uh, we, we teach other people how to do this in-house uh, and they could be psychologists they could be uh, counselors they could be you know these good coaches within the business so they're, they're, they're perhaps next level because there's a bit there's a bit more to that you've got to be a little bit more aware you've got to be very onto your risk uh, and making sure that you've got a you know very good clarity about what your scope of practice is and how you're engaging with people that are you know got trauma or depression or anxiety or, or particularly if there's a risk of self-harm so there's a there's some quite tight boundaries around scope of practice there so ideally, would you like to see this being rolled out in the induction process yeah. through most organisations? That's where it's best initiated? That is absolutely the best place to get it. Yeah. Uh, having uh, people with lived experience, having managers come in and deliver bits of the training to, to new recruits, uh, and on day one, you're saying to them, your resilience is critically important and we're here to support you uh, on, your, on your journey through our company or our, our agency uh, and right up front on day one, and we're telling you right now that there are supports available, there's resources available, and we take it seriously. That would be that would be where I'd, I'd embed it in the in the organisation. Now you've got a legacy, of course, and you've got yeah. some 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 old fellas, and generally they are blokes who yeah. who may be a bit like, oh, I don't do that, you know, toughen up, take a cup of concrete, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you've got to get a work around them bit by bit. But the best bang for your buck, people coming in, and. 
and once they do the initial training, is there is there an ongoing component that is a refresher and a an update that is recommended to happen throughout their career? We do uh, periodic updates, and we do we do little bits and pieces face to face with the peer support network people. Uh, also, because it's online, we can send out an email with something new. It could be a story. It could be a, a particular event. So, for example, uh, I think it was last November, we had Sleep Month. Uh, and, and we did four webinars and we did new resources and new things that we released across every all of our platforms. People that signed up years ago uh, would have got an email saying, hey, guess what? We're having Sleep Month. You know, sleep's really come up as a bit of a challenge during this COVID and lockdown time. Let's go through some of the principles and we'll, we'll share with you and help and, and problem solve and run some blogs or whatever's needed. So we can do that and, and that's, the, that's the intention that we grow the network and then we don't, we don't pump out stuff at people. Uh, you know, they've already got a, a lot going on, but occasionally we'll do something thematic uh, or we might send out a newsletter with a with a really powerful story in it, or or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Where did where did the mindset where did where did this stem from? Was it um, was it Mike that that came up with it, or saw the gap that existed? Was it something that you sort of did with your combined leadership and found there was a gap in there, as well as trying to help train people and teach them that that resilience is actually ingrained in them? I mean, where where did it come from? I think it was I think it was genuinely uh, two parallel developments that sort of came together. Uh, I was probably a bit ahead of Mike in training teams and organisations. He he'd been doing a lot more high profile one on one one on one coaching. Okay, uh, and there's also around some sort of pretty big pretty big events, uh, and he was starting to get into some frontline agencies in America and and said, "Hey, you know what have you got?" And I said, "Well, I've, I've actually got all the proposals that I've done. I've got programs that I've developed and." Uh, why don't you have all this uh, and let's sort of work it, work it up a bit and, uh, and pitch that and, r- and run a few of these programs. So, uh, so that's kind of how it sort of came together. Sounds like a great partnership, really. Yeah, we're very different. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, he's, he's, he's got the, the crazy, I call him the cat in the hat. He's got that entertaining, creative, you know, flair and I'm kind of more the sort of sciencey bit and the, <laughs> the analytics and, and between the two of us, uh, we, we get there. So it's... Uh, you need diversity, you know. We, pe- people often talk about this, you know, you, you, your co-founders, co-CEOs. How does that work? Well, certainly in tough times when you you know you've got challenges in entrepreneurs in a business, it really helps having somebody who's got your back and, and can work with you on that. So, uh, by and large, it works really really well. What are the main factors that you've identified that contribute to helping build resilience in frontline workers? There are there are a number of different skills and approaches and. Uh, I talk about practitioner-led and I said that by and large, mostly what we discover now, we're sort of very familiar with. So if I got a, a group of maybe a dozen, 15, 16 frontline workers that come in for, for our training, and we'll start off by asking some questions. And one of the questions we ask is, when you're resilient at your best, that's like what? And we listen to what comes out. And it's, it's designed to elicit metaphors and various other things. And we write down what they say, literally write down everything they say as they discover and they, they describe when I'm resilient at my best. We go around that and you've got, let's say you've got 16 people in the room. Out of there, we'll be able to pull out about 85% of our course from the room. But what's interesting is nobody will do all of them. Everyone will have something that they do that's a go-to. And some people will do two or three things. 
But once you go around a whole team, maybe 16 people, you get almost our, our entire course will come out on the board and we say, okay, here's how we structure the course. Today, for the rest of the day, we're going to be doing this, this and this. And these people naturally do this. And these people here, they naturally do what we're doing tomorrow morning. And, and then we'll unpack what they're doing, but we'll also take it to the next level and we'll really clean it up. So not that they do it a bit. We'll show you exactly how to do it super, uh, super cleanly, uh, exactly when to put it into context, how to go into it and how to come out of it again. So all this stuff's very temporary. It's like what's needed in the moment and we'll show you how to do it and we'll unpack it and then we'll get you to coach it to somebody else. That's really interesting. Do you find that the resilience means different things to different people? Absolutely. Yeah, even within the same profession? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. When you, you know, somebody might say, uh, you know, under pressure when, when such and such happens, I take a step back and it's like I'm an observer. It's like I'm a fly on the wall and I've got great peripheral and, you know, da-da-da and they describe all this. Somebody else might go, oh, it's like I'm a conductor in an orchestra. You go, well, what does that mean? But you start to unpack what's conduct. What are they doing when they're conducting? And you can see the, the you can see the hands moving. You can see where they're looking. You can see the situational awareness. They're t they're tuning into the tempo, you know. And you start to unpack what they're doing there. And you go, oh, okay, that's look at, you know look at, look at the strategies here that that people are using to communicate and to lead and and to and to manage the situation. Uh, somebody else might say, oh, well, I, I, you know, it's like I wear three different hats. Sometimes I'm really directing the traffic and another time I'm, I'm asking people their opinion and a third time I'm whatever it might be. So you're getting all that stuff yeah. coming out, but we just make it explicit and then we go, hey, guess what? You know, we're going to teach you now how to dissociate uh, temporarily and, 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 and adopt an observer position and we're going to teach you how to breathe. When you say I take a breath, let's do take a breath and we'll show you how to do really high performance breathing. Or somebody might say, well, I'll just make sure I get, I get lots of rest and, uh, you know, we'll show you how to get lots of rest even if you're on shift work. So that's the kind of, that's yeah. the kind of approach we take. We, we, we like to practitioner-led first and then we sort of leverage off what's in the room, but we've, we almost never broadcast at people and tell them what the answer is. Even if we know what they're going to tell us, we won't tell them. But by doing it that way, you're almost empowering them, aren't you, to take – or enabling is the word you used – um, to take control and, and know that the answer's within. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're also naturalising it. These aren't some experts who are telling us some stuff we should be doing. These are natural processes that pe human beings and their teammates are using. Mm. Uh, and, and we like to say, hey, look, it's, it's in the room. Now let's just work on what's in the room. There'll be some stuff that they've not seen before uh, and they're, you know, we'll... We'll take it. We'll take up some of those things, and there'll be some activities that they go, "Wow, this is really crazy! How you get there from this?" And they wouldn't have known that. Of course, there's lots of that stuff, uh, but we're always building on what's in the room, and we just trust that it's in there, and it always is. Hundreds of teams, it's always in the room. It's uh, th there's a lot to be said by that peer-led uh, education and taking some control and and leading the conversation which is, I think, what you're saying about that. Just getting them involved in the process, uh, sharing their experience and interpretation of what they mean because you've identified that that's perfectly fits into the part of the syllabus that you've outlined anyway. Yeah, and it, I've got to say, it's just, it's just so rewarding and, and really relaxing as a trainer because you don't have this thing where you, some leaders have this... Uh, this uh, sense of imposter syndrome you might have heard of that where they go well you know i don't think i i've got what it takes here well you don't actually have to know the answers to pretty well anything 
what you need to be able to do is ask questions of the people around you and be able to hold that space and just have the confidence that it's there. A lot of the time, we'll go in and we'll go, I actually have no idea what's going on here, but I don't need to because I'm sure that somebody in here will lead us where we need to be. So we just go with the flow and before you know it, everything's fallen into place and uh, there's just so much great stuff coming out from the people we work with. With regards to the leadership program you have, uh, what's been the biggest gap, do you think, when you've people have taken that program where you feel like there's a bit of a um, the key the key things that you think are being missed or that aren't people aren't naturally bringing out themselves to be a better leader? Where, where, where have you identified that that's helped the most? I think the I think the biggest challenge is most leaders and most managers, they're just so busy and they, they're a bit smashed and they've got these you know, enormous expectations on top of them. And it's, it's the ability to, to step back from that and triage a bit and go, you know what, I can't do all of this. I'm not going to do all of it. Uh, what I am going to do is I'm going to prioritise my own development. I'm going to prioritise my leadership here and I'm going to prioritise getting my people to high perform as a collective. And it's switching from managers and leaders doing to managers and leaders facilitating collaborating and coaching and getting their people to to perform uh, and supporting them to do that Uh, as soon as they start to make that shift they've got a little bit more space to be able to continue that journey but it's breaking that when they're the expectations the cultural norms are are around that responsiveness so they're they're very much in the reactive space, not in the strategic space and not in that space of strategically developing through coaching the people that are working with them. Uh, and that's, that's where we're, you know, you're looking for every bit of leverage you can to get people to do that. And I guess you're right, like they're so busy in their job doing what they're doing that to almost try and get them to see that, well, hang on, leadership is like a muscle that needs work as well. And you obviously found that very early in your career with what you were doing. Uh, to help you be a more effective leader in the research stuff, but that's something that's transferable and that you're probably seeing and identifying and trying to help people see that you are a leader in what you're doing and it needs work just like any anything else in life. Um, unless you're spending the time to work on it, you won't uh, you won't develop it or get big or get better. Or it may get better, but it may take time and experience to develop that. Whereas if we can shortcut and model some of these leadership points and behaviours, we can fast-track that. Is that sort of – am I saying that in the, in the right way? Yeah, I think I, there are definitely some fast-tracks in there. I, I think, for example, uh, we talk a lot about feed-forward uh, and, and try and break some of the, the very lagged feedback processes that are in a lot of agencies and businesses. Uh, and we start talking about feed-forward and how people can start to take – uh, insights, uh, whether that's quantitative or qualitative or just from their teams, uh, into very very near uh, change initiatives. It could be anything from the way that workflow happens, the way that you respond mm-hmm. to a crisis or, or whatever it might be. So getting, getting leaders and managers to go into a feed-forward mode where they're continually assessing the situation that they're currently in and adapting and pivoting. Uh, so many of these agencies or, or companies we work with, they've got five-year strategic plans that were dreamt up by a bunch of consultants and a, and a, and a few senior executives, uh, and they're absolutely disconnected from the reality of the business. Yeah. Uh, and and what, what we need to do is get people working strategically on, what can I do strategically today? 
if you ask, I, I've done this exercise. This is this is a horrific exercise for for people who've come up with strategic plans. It's big piece of paper, like enormous piece of paper, and I give everybody in the room three post-it notes, and I say, I want you to write down. You're not allowed to look at your strategic plan. Write down the three things in the strategic plan that are guiding your actions day by day, mm. and you get everyone goes absolutely silent. I, I've done this, and I've had like three post-it notes out of a hundred had something on them. The rest were blank, and I put them all up on the on the on the on the big piece of paper and I give it to the person that's written the strategic plan I say that is actually your strategy that's it because that's the stuff that's guiding people day by day if it's not in their it's not in their minds it's not guiding their day-to-day decisions it is not a strategy that's working so what you want is something that people can grasp and go that's going to tell me what not to do that's going to tell me what to do it's as simple as that and what am I going to do day by day week by week as a leader and manager yeah you've got to have an idea where you're heading out into the distant future but distant future I mean you know, we've just come out of 2020. You know, how many strategic plans went up in a puff of smoke in, in January last year? All of them, probably. And, and the other point is five-year plans are probably too long these days. I mean, oh, yeah. the, the, the world and the markets move so quickly these days that you need to be agile uh, and nimble. And um, But do you also think some of it's because the, they overcomplicate things and they they, you know, sometimes write all this stuff down and then they go, yeah, this is really good, and they get or high five and then they go out there and like you said, if you ask anybody about what that says or what the strategy is or what the mission or the vision or values are that's guiding you and your actions, they don't know. You were, you used a term to the overcomplicated and absolutely they overcomplicate it. And, and complicated systems are like a, a bit like a factory, right? You can, a complicated system, it's got causation in it, you can, you can, twiddle a lever over here and it'll produce something over there. You know, they're complicated systems. But actually, most of the systems that we're working with are complex. They're continually adapting. They're more organic. They're more like a jungle. And it's about how you're growing within this jungle, how you're responding to changing, changing climate, changing markets, changing your, your demographic, changing the, the needs of your, of your customers or the public. Uh, and these are, these are very fast-paced changes. This is not something you can engineer your way through. This is not something you can produce a detailed plan for that's going to go from here to there over a five-year period. Uh, that's just not the type of system we're in. You, as you say, you've got to be much more agile. You've got to be able to pivot. You've got to be able to know where you are today. What's going on? You need to be situationally aware. Mm-hmm. That's the first first part of the leadership piece. If you're mm-hmm. not situationally aware and you don't know what's going on and you can't see the patterns around you, you've got no hope of predicting the future. You don't even know where you are today. Ian, I'd love to get your thoughts on culture and where that sits within everything that you're up to. I mean, is this is creating the culture of organisations, uh, reducing stigma, making it okay to talk about things, whether it's approachability, uh, what you walk past is what you approve by. I mean, all these things. Is this do you, what? What's the role that you think culture plays in certainly frontline organisations and? Is it something that you're addressing through the stuff that you're doing? Oh, absolutely. Culture is everything. Uh, the perceptions that people have, they really start to define culture. And I, we, we, we lean a lot on the work of Dave Snowden and, and his colleagues in Cognitive Edge. I've, I've got to say, uh, I've spent quite a, few, quite a lot of time with Dave and his, uh, his associates over the last sort of four or five years. Uh, real focus on narrative. Uh, and, you know, he says that narrative defines culture. The stories that people tell around the water cooler, that is your culture. 
that defines your culture. Now, if you can change the stories or you can have uh, programs that lead to more stories of the type of stories you want to hear, fewer stories of the sort of stories you don't want to hear, then you've got a culture change program. And, and this is really important uh, because uh, the front line of the business, they're all telling stories. This is where you go for your culture change. If you're going to parachute in a desired utopian culture from the top, from your, your exec, you're not going to get the change you want. It's okay to put some values and some principles up and, and really articulate the mission and the vision. That's absolutely the job of you, the leadership in your organization. But your culture change has to be bottom up and top down. It has to be everybody thinking about what's being said, what's, what actions are happening here, and what can we do today? What sort of things can we do, all of us, today to move in the right direction? I think the, a lot of culture change, well, almost all culture change programs fail because they go out to some end state that's fantastic, it sounds brilliant, but it's disconnected from the reality. It's much better to go, okay, look, we're here today. And whether you're a team in crisis or a team that's going okay, you still need to know which direction are we going to head and what do we, what do we want to do a little bit more of and what do we probably want to do a bit less of. And it's a much easier frame for people to grasp and, and it works. So, Yeah, getting the buy-in from the whole team. Absolutely. I've said to executives, I've, I've shown them some uh, cultural metrics, I've shown them sense of threat in their organisation and they're generally a bit mortified and I say, look, one thing that you can do that will guarantee that your change programme will fail and that is you tell everybody in your organisation what to do. If you lead this from the top, I guarantee 100% it will fail. You have to engage with the front line of your business and you have to involve them and even if you know what the answer is, just zip it. And let them tell you what they think and half of the stuff that you're thinking they're going to be thinking and any of the stuff that you really, really want to have happen, go, that person there just said this and we agree and we want to back it, let's go. So uh, yeah. let them speak, uh, listen. There's, ins- there's an incredible amount of wisdom in the front line of, of these businesses and, and it's just a question of tapping into that and using that, that intelligence and, uh, and, and, and getting that, harnessing it so it can, uh, it can be a part of uh, driving the sorts of changes that people want. Ian, who's been some of the uh, most influential mentors in your life? Well, there's, uh, I've been incredibly lucky. I've been mentored by some of the really best people in the world, uh, I've got to say. Uh, from my PhD supervisor, Simon Harley, years and years ago, he really taught me how to think. He taught me how to think analytically. He taught me how to really be a scientist. Uh, and I'm you know, uh, incredibly indebted to him uh, for that. Uh, even teachers at school, you know, there's a number there. You think, oh, wow, that person taught me this. Uh, enormous uh, gratitude to John Grinder, uh, a linguist who taught me about pattern detection and linguistics and, uh, and about states and flow and all sorts of things like that. Uh, his wife, Carmen, incredibly uh, insightful woman as well. Uh, uh, Dave Snowden, I've mentioned, uh, he, uh, and, and a few of his key staff have, have spent a lot of time helping me uh, sort of push the boundaries of complexity and frontline and resilience and, 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 and bouncing off there. Uh, James and James uh, Lawley and Penny Tompkins from, from Clean Language have uh, helped me understand metaphors and how metaphors uh, operate in teams and in organisations. And, uh, and that might sound really strange, but, you know, there's some really good data that, that says that there's a metaphor in, a, in every sentence around about every six seconds it's like an entirely hidden language. And then once you suddenly become fluent in that language, you go, wow, this, this, this whole culture change, this whole performance piece, this whole resilience and leadership thing, this is all in metaphors. Uh, and understanding that, uh, so, so they've, they've, again, you know, given me an enormous amount of time and, 
very very generous uh, support. So that's just a few of them. I've had a few uh, really top top yeah. mentors. Certainly sounds like it. What, if you look forward, what's what's coming up in? Uh, obviously, you want to move that other course online uh, as a focus. But uh, if we elevate a little bit more and stretch it out, what where are you heading and what are you up to? Well, there's a few projects uh, on the on the go. Uh, like I said, I've just finished writing a book, which has taken 14 months uh, of extremely intense research and uh, and dedication, and on a on a Zoom call with Mike pretty well every single working day, uh, working through this this beast. We've got two weeks of editing to go, uh, and then we're we're going to step back and uh, come up with our new sort of strategy for for where we go from here. Uh, one of the things we're looking at is uh, is a virtual coach. So we've we've been talking to some people about some AI, and we've been doing some development work in there. Cool. Uh, so virtual coaching and about how we can uh, develop that into the trauma space. Uh, so we know what we know what we can do. We know how to do it. Uh, and now it's just a question of getting the project together, uh, putting the funds in, uh, and bringing a few people on uh, yeah. into the future. So. It sounds exciting. And the book, uh, The Resilience by Design, yep. So that'll be a few months away before... Yeah, we've, we've been, we're very lucky to be supported by Wiley. So they've got a great wow. distribution network. Yeah. You know, they, they're uh, probably the biggest uh, publisher who work in the science space, uh, sort of academic. And although this book's written for... It's written for, uh, for frontline people. Uh, it's not written... It's, it's fully referenced, you know, there's like 600 references in it or something. Uh, but there, it's presented in a way that's full colour. Uh, it's got lots of illustrations. It's very, really easy to dip in and out of. And it's written in a, uh, in a language that, that normal human beings will be able to go, oh, I understand what that's about. And there's a, you know, we've tried to cut the jargon to the absolute minimum. There's still some of it, of course. Uh, but we've really not written an academic textbook. Uh, yeah. We didn't want to do that. There's no point. Uh, there's some good textbooks out there, but we've gone and gone for, you know, what what could a what could a team manager read that would give them something immediately? They open the page and go, that's something that I can take and I can use with my people. So that was our uh, our mission, and and Wiley backed us on that. So we're really excited to be working with those guys. Sounds incredible, mate. We can't wait for that. Tell us how can people get in touch with you and the organisation? Uh, email's probably the best. Team at frontlinemind.com. Uh, and and people more reliable than me will pick that up. Uh, I'm I'm a bit hit and miss with email, especially for the next two weeks while I'm editing this book. I uh, the only way I get this stuff done is I just switch off the world. Yeah. Uh, I go deep dive. Uh, so. It's uh, okay. That's that's really good. Is there anything else you want to say in closing, Ian? That I may not have asked you, or that um, that you wanted to, you wanted to say. I think that was a terrific interview. You know, really good, insightful questions. I've really enjoyed talking with you and. Uh, following your chain of thought and where you've been going. So there's nothing else I'd like to add. I think you've done a great job. Well, thanks very much for your time, Ian. I appreciate it. And, uh, and good luck with the future and everything that you've got going on. Thank you. Yeah, good to meet you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.